If you're here in Matthew chapter 20, I want to preach tonight on the marks of a healthy mission, and really it's the marks of a healthy church. If you are in business, you often hear the mantra that a business has to have a defined mission statement. If you're in the military, you're often understanding what is mission critical. And as we talk tonight about the church, we want to talk about what is the mission of the church. And we often refer to this as the Great Commission, and we want to keep it in context. In chapter 28, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The women have gone, if we go back to verse 10, then they said, Jesus said to them, be not afraid, go to my brethren, that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. Skip down, if you would, now to verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Marks of a healthy church. The central message of Scripture contains to the central mission of the people of God, a mission that tragically many Christians don't understand or they're unwilling to fulfill. Some Christians think little about their mission in this world except in regards to their own personal needs. They attend church when it's convenient, taking what they feel like taking and having little concern for anything else. It escapes both their understanding and their concern that God has given his church a supreme mission that he calls every believer to be a part in fulfilling. If we asked you tonight, what's the purpose of the church? You'd have many opinions if we did a survey. Some would say the purpose of the church is fellowship. Some would say it's good Bible preaching and teaching. Some would say it's worship. And by the way, all of those things should happen in the church. But is that the main purpose of the church? I would challenge you tonight, if that was the main purpose of the church, God would just take us right to heaven. We can do all those things in heaven. Why did Jesus Christ, you know why Jesus Christ came to this earth? The Bible says he came to seek and to save those who are lost. I would challenge you as I travel America, this is a mission that's being neglected by many, many churches. Many churches have have stopped reaching out to lost people. And as we look at this text tonight, I want to look at some hallmarks, in fact, I was just sharing this with the pastors. You know that last year, the United States became the third largest country in the world of unchurched people behind India and China. And most people would have never thought that would be true of America, but it is today. You know, as I travel, most baptismal tanks are storage areas. And if they leave water in there, it's to humidify the piano. It's not for baptisms. And that's not the way it should be tonight. And I would challenge you that it can't be just the pastor's job. This has to be all of our job. And that's really what our text is challenging us to do, and that's why we refer to it as the Great Commission. You and I, our main goal is to glorify God, and we glorify God by obeying him. And one of the ways we need to obey him is in this great mission that God has given the church. What are the marks of those who understand and accept the mission? Well, if you're in our text, first number one is availability. In verse 10, Jesus said, go to Galilee. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Have you ever heard someone say the greatest ability is what? Availability. The greatest ability is availability. The most talented and gifted Christian is useless to God unless he's available to be used. I don't know if you do baby dedications here. We we did that in our uh, church up in Canada. But as a pastor, I would often go when a couple had a baby. And it always amazed me. I have three children of my own. I remember my first daughter when she was born gave that first little squeak and she melted my heart. You go to a hospital and you hold that baby and your thumb is as big as their entire hand, a newborn baby. 
And often I would go to the hospital and often I would dedicate those children to the Lord. And I don't know how you felt if you've had a child, but I remember when I had that, my first daughter, it just amazed me, overwhelmed me. And I easily dedicated her to the Lord and I easily said, God, whatever you have for her life, that's what I want her to have. And when I go to the hospital and meet with young parents, they often feel the same way. They easily, in fact, often they say, Pastor, will you pray for our child? And they they give the most precious possession they have into my arms. And I hold that little baby and I pray in the hospital room, God, I pray that this child, number one, will trust you as their savior when they're old enough to understand. And God, I pray that the purposes you have for this child will be fully accomplished. And the parents are in complete agreement until that child turns 18. And all of a sudden when that child turns 18, now you have parents that say, no, I don't want my kid to go to a Christian college. I don't want my kid to go to ministry. I want my kid to make money. The same parent who 18 years earlier said, I dedicate this child to the Lord, has a very different perspective when they turn 18 today. There's not a lot of Hannahs anymore. You know who I'm talking about in the Old Testament? The Bible says she lent Samuel to the Lord. And she said, whatever, God, whatever plans in, was Samuel greatly used by the Lord? I mean, tremendously used by the Lord. I would just challenge you, do you still say you're available? Are your children available? Is it okay with you parents if God calls your child into ministry? You know, I used to travel when I was a kid. Everyone said, go at least one year to a Bible college. You don't hear that anymore today. I still think it's true. 95% of all students, secular universities and Christian colleges, 95% of freshmen change their major in the first year. It's funny to me that people spend so much time investing in Christian education until they get to grade 12, and then good luck after that. And the challenge is because parents say, no, my kid's not available for ministry. How about Isaiah? Remember when God said, who will go for me? And Isaiah said, here am I, send who? Send me. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the song, but there's a lot of people that change the words of the song, Lord, send them anywhere. Only go with them. (laughs) Lay any burden on them, only sustain them. That is not the way that song's supposed to be sung, if you know the song. Hey, we're fine with someone else being called to ministry, but just don't ask us to be called to ministry. Let me ask you tonight, are you available to reach lost people? When's the last time you had an unsafe person in your home for dinner? You know, most of us have a home. Most of us have opportunity. When's the last time you said, man, I, just last week, I had an unsaved family in our home for dinner? You know why most of us don't do that? Because we say our home's not available. I want to ask how many of you have an unsaved neighbor living next to you. I used to call our church the Magnificent Seven Challenge. Two houses on the left, two houses on the right, three houses across. They should all be in your home in a year. But a lot of people say, well, I'm just, I'm just not available. I'm just too busy. Is your time available? You ever see a neighbor struggling? I already told you about snow, and I know a lot of you may not know what snow looks like. Just remember, it's sand that's really cold, all right? And this stuff would come down from the sky. And in Canada, you had to shovel your snow within 24 hours, and every person knew where the crack on the sidewalk separated your sidewalk from your neighbor's sidewalk. And there was no way you were going to shovel one snowflake of your neighbors if you didn't have to. And then I told our church people, you know what, why don't you just shovel a little bit further just so that they ask you, why'd you do that? Just so that you can give the gospel. You know, had one guy go out and bought a snowblower and did a whole cul-de-sac. 
Every time it snowed, he'd come and do the whole cul-de-sac just so that someday one of his neighbors would say, how come you did that? You know what he was saying? I want to be available. I want to ask you tonight, when's the last time you did something on purpose for someone to hear the gospel? When's the last time you did a random act of senseless kindness? You know why most of us don't? We're too busy. We're just not available. What about our resources? Are you, are you giving to the work of God? You know, does the president blink when he comes out in the church service? <laughs> if you know what I'm saying? You bring out that dollar bill and he's never seen the light inside a church service before. And you say, no, I need to make my resources available. I need to help the cause of Christ. When's the last time you got to know your neighbor or your coworker? Do your neighbors and coworkers know you go to this, this church? Have you ever invited them to this church? Have you ever gone to their ball games? Have you ever just said, how can I get involved? You're going to have to be available. When Jesus told these men to go to Galilee, they showed up in Galilee. They said, we're going to be available. By the way, when Jesus rose from the dead, is that what they were expecting? When the women came back and said, hey, Christ rose from the dead, did all the disciples go, yeah, we were expecting that? Is that what happened? No, they ran to the, the, the tomb themselves. They said, come on. And the, these ladies come and say, well, all we know is that you're supposed to be in Galilee. So the disciples said, well, that's where we're going to be. Not only do you need to be available, but secondly, you need to worship, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. We know doubting Thomas is one of those. I would think it would be the normal reaction when you saw Jesus Christ on the cross and then you see him after that. How would you not worship? Do you really love God tonight? You know one of the great commandments is we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you love him like that tonight? If you got saved as an adult, do you remember when the light came on for you and you understood you were lost and you were gonna go to hell and that Jesus Christ died to take your place? Wasn't that overwhelming? And, and when they saw Jesus Christ, they did what I would think all of us would automatically do. They fell to the ground and worshiped. When God is not truly worshiped, he cannot be truly served, no matter how talented, gifted, or well-intentioned you may be. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constrains us, or the love of Christ compels us. Love will get you to do what you'll never do any other way. I, I grew up on a farm, and my dad used to plant an acre garden. He used a tractor and a disc to plant the garden. A lot of people call that crops. My dad called it a garden. And I would take care of the garden. I'd snap beans, if you ever snap beans. I mean, I've snapped hours and hours of snapping beans. And so when I left the farm, I said, there's one thing I will never do. I will never have a garden. And I married a country girl. And guess what she wanted after we got married? She wanted a garden. And I remember I put in the first garden and I had to go buy manure. Did you know you could buy that stuff? <laughs> if I had known that as a kid, I'd have been rich. We had that stuff everywhere as a kid. I never knew you could throw in a bag of plastic and make money on that stuff. I could stand here tonight and tell you there's only one person on the planet I would buy a bag of manure for and I married her. It's the love of my wife that compels me to do that. I say, you know what? I, I, I would only do this for you, honey, but I love you, so I'm going to do this for you. And you know, there's things in God's word that God's going to tell you to do, and if you love God, you know what you're going to say? 
No problem. Happy to do it. Why? Because you love God. That's why it's one of the great commandments. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is the heart of Christian theology, and it produced a passionate love for Christ and Paul, as it should in every one of us. Let me ask you tonight, do you love God the way you love the other things in your life? You know, we love to come to church and sing, oh, how I love Jesus, but do you really love him the way you love the other things in your life? I love to hunt. Obviously, in an island, that's maybe not a big deal, but in Canada, there's all kinds of animals to hunt. And I've gotten up very early in the morning and sat for hours till the sun came up, freezing cold, and I thought, man, this is wonderful. It's awesome. I love to hunt. And all the women in my church would say, oh, that's so terrible. Why do you do that? And do they have Black Friday on this island, day after Thanksgiving? Black Friday on the mainland is a huge deal. All those same people that gave me a hard time about hunting, all those same girls, they're wrapping around Home Depot two hours before it opens. I mean, is there really that much of a deal on duct tape that would get you to do that? But if you love shopping, I mean, you love Black Friday. That's your day. I've seen women in the church, they have a plan. One goes to the register, the other one goes shopping so that they can keep moving store to store. I was like, I didn't know you could plan out Black Friday, but if you love to shop, you do that. If you love God tonight, and you know whether this is true in your heart of hearts, Would you never skip the evening news, but you regularly skip your devotions? If you're a football fan, did you get up at 3 o'clock this morning to watch a football game, but you didn't get your devotions in? Do you regularly check ESPN or the stock market, but you don't read your Bible? I would challenge you tonight, then you don't really worship God. You don't really love him. When you love God, you'll love to spend time with him. You know, when I was in college, Pastor Gary and I went to the same college, and, and usually you'd have three roommates. And my wife and I dated in, the, in a time before internet, so we'd write love letters. She's a little older than me, so she graduated. I'd write her a letter every day, and she'd write me a letter every day. So every day I'd get a letter, every day I'd mail a letter. And one day I'd accidentally left one of those letters on my desk, and one of my roommates was kind enough to open it up and read it to all my other roommates. <laughs> So I walk in there, and she's, he's, he's reading it, and he waits till I walk in the room, and then he starts reading this letter that my fiancé at the time had written to me. You're the greatest guy ever. Ah! You're so handsome. Ah! I love you so much. I can't wait to see you again. Ah! I'm like, give me that. I read that letter, and I thought, that is good stuff. No wonder I married that girl. Why did that mean everything to me and nothing to them? is because I was in love with the one who wrote it. And you know why for some of you this means nothing to you? And why for some of you this means everything to you? Because some of you are in love with the one who wrote this, and some of you aren't. And the Bible says if we're going to reach lost people, then number one, we have to be available, but secondly, you have to love God. How, you know what? Have you ever been around a new grandparent? And they say, do you want to see a picture of my grandchild? Before you can say no, they got all the pictures out, right? It flows all the way down to the, the, the floor. Why? I mean, you don't have to hang around me much, and you're going to hear me talk about my wife. Why? We talk about what we love. And if you really love the Lord, if you are a worshiper of God, then you're going to tell people about who you love and who you serve. 
If we're going to be the witnesses God wants us to be, it must be the love of Christ that compels us. When we stop loving God passionately, something else will take its place. Not only do we need to be available, secondly, we need to worship, but thirdly, we need to be submissive. Look what he says in verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. The New King James, it says, All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And I think that is probably a better idea of what that word is to be translated. All authority or all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Before the Lord states the Great Commission, he establishes his divine authority to command it. I've had some people say, witnessing, that's just not my gift. That, that's, just not, that's just not my thing. I'm just not wired that way. And I believe God wires the church differently. Some of you should never be the greeter at the front door, right? Some of you should just stack chairs. That's your gift, all right? So, and, that, and that's the way it should be. I mean, God made us all different. Some of you should sing. Some of you should not sing, right? And if you sing, by the way, I've been blessed by the music since I've been here. If you work in the nursery, if you usher, if you're doing what you're doing so that the gospel can go out, then you're doing your part. But all of us should be working on someone to come to Christ. I'll get to this in a minute, but I think every one of you should have someone you're purposely praying for to get saved. And if you're not, I don't think you get this, com- this commission yet. This is the great commission. And God says, I have the authority to command this. You know, for a lot of Christians, we think we're in the union instead of the military. And I am not here to offend any union workers tonight. But if you're in the union, there's a guy, he, he, all he does is join the pipes together. But then there's another guy who has to bring the pipes. And the guy who joins the pipes can't bring the pipes. Because everyone in the union has a very specialized job. And some people think being a, a, a witness to lost people, they're in the union. Well, that's just not my gift. That's not my job. No, the Bible says, this, I have all authority to command this. I'm telling you, every Christian in this room has a responsibility to tell someone about Jesus Christ. I, I wish there wasn't a hell tonight, but there is. And we need to do everything we can to keep people from going there. And that's why we need to give the gospel. If you walked by a burning house and saw someone in there, would you just walk by? I hope everyone in this room would say, no, I'd do everything I could to get them out of there. Then what about someone whose soul is in peril tonight? And God says, I have all authority to command this. The sovereign authority given to Jesus by his heavenly Father is absolute and universal. Submission to Jesus Christ is not a believer's option, it's a supreme obligation. It's not negotiable or adjustable to one's particular inclination or plan. God says, this is what you need to do. You know, Pastor Gary and I are good friends. I have enjoyed today immensely getting to spend time with him. And could you imagine if my wife and I were going to go on vacation and I, I called Pastor Gary up and I said, hey, would you come over and watch my house? And he said, Jim, be happy to do it. And so he comes over and I said, Pastor Gary, I need to give you a few rules. I just need to let you know that, number one, garbage day is on Tuesday. You need to make sure the garbage out on Tuesday. He says, Jim, got it, no problem. I said, secondly, uh, my wife has a lot of plants in here, and you got to water the plants every other day, and here's how much water, and some plants need this, some plants need that, but make sure you take care of the plants, and they're really important to my wife. And Pastor Gary said, no problem, I got that. And I take him downstairs. I said, you know, we have a toilet downstairs, and if you're not careful with the handle, it, it can stick. And when it sticks, it'll flood. So if you hear that water running, make, keep an eye on the toilet. Make sure it doesn't flood. Jim, I got that. 
I said, Pastor Gary, you got to take care of the cat. We have a little cat here, and here's where the food is, and here's everything to take care of the cat. And Pastor Gary goes, Jim, I got that. And if you knew my wife, my wife types out all those directions. And so I give those directions on a sheet of paper to Pastor Gary and said, Pastor Gary, take care of this. He said, Jim, just go have a great time. Could you imagine if a month later I come back, I pull up to the house and there's a huge pile of garbage in the front of the house. And we walk in and all the plants are dead. And I walk in the basement and it's flooded. And I look out in the back and there's a little mound with a cross where the cat's been buried. <laughs> Which really wouldn't be that bad, all right? But, but let's just say the little... And, I, and could you imagine if I go to Pastor Gary and go, Pastor Gary, what happened? And he goes, oh, Jim, I love those directions. Look, look, that, that part about feeding the cat, I highlighted that. And I, that was my favorite part. You know what? I memorized that part. I memorized that part about taking the garbage out. Here, test me. I can do it word for word. I go, well, well Pastor Gary, that's great, but the cat's dead. And you know what some of us do? We come to church, we underline, we highlight, we memorize, we just don't do it. If I came home and found my house like that, you know what I would think? We're not as good of friends as I thought we were. Because if you were, the cat'd still be alive, right? What do you think God thinks? When God says, I'm going to give you a command, I have all authority to command this, and the command I'm going to give you is go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I want every one of you involved in that process. And you say, boy, that's good stuff. In fact, in my Bible, it's red print. Is it red print in your Bible? Man, I love the red print. That's a quote from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ tells me to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I can underline that, I can highlight it, but I want to tell you in traveling three years across America, most churches are not doing it. And just like if I came home and found my house flooded and all the plants dead and garbage in the front and the cat buried in the back, it doesn't matter that he underlined and highlighted. By the way, Pastor Gary would never do this, all right? So uh, if you don't know him well enough, he would never do that. But if he did, you know what I would say? We're not good friends. And you can't go to God and say, well, this, this just isn't my spiritual gift. This, I, this isn't what I do. No, God says, no, you need to do this to everyone. I want to challenge you tonight. It always comes back to your love for God. You have to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you do, you will want to obey him. You will want to serve him. I don't know if you're struggling with any sin tonight, but the wrong way to look at sin is I gotta get rid of the sin. You know what happens? No, get your focus on Christ, and when you get your focus on Christ, you'll be amazed how that sin goes away. If you met my wife, I'm a lot bigger than she is. And if you said, could you beat up your wife? Physically, I could, but you know what I would say? Uh, it's impossible. I never beat her up. Why? Because I love her. And because the love of Christ constrains you, you'll talk about it. I remember a, a gentleman that we were witnessing to, and a lady in our church worked in a coffee shop. None of us knew that when he was a child, he went to a Christian church. And when he got old enough, he walked away from God, went off into the oil patch, lived his own life, but he married a girl who was religious. She went to a United Church, and she wanted him to go to church with him. He said, no, I'm never going to United Church. If I ever go to church, I'm only going to go to a Baptist church. And so this day, they went to the coffee shop, and he, they ordered their coffee, and the girl was in our college and career group, and 
we were having a special event in our church, and she invited them to come to our church. And he said, well, what church is it? He said, Meadowlands Baptist Church. And his wife said, you promised. (laughs) And he said, okay, I'll go. She said, well, I'll go with you. So they came to our church that Sunday. I preached the gospel. We had an invitation at the end. I said, if you're not sure you're saved, put your hand up. Up went his hand. We didn't have people come forward at our church, and I just said, in our church, if people ever heard me say, I see that hand, they knew to leave me alone after the service. And I just walked back to the back, and as I was standing near him, he said, uh, hey, I, I put my hand up. I said, I noticed that. He said, I said, could I come over to your house? He said, how about Tuesday night? I said, great. I went over to their home on Tuesday night. I brought my Bible. I sat down with him on the, on the couch, and I started going through the plan of salvation. I wasn't, and she was across the room in a rocking chair. As I'm going through the plan of salvation with him, the next time I look up, the rocking chair is right in front of us. And she says, I've never heard this before in my life. And that night, both of them trusted Christ as their Savior. And here he is, an, a rough, tough oil patch worker, but he was a woodworker. And here he got saved in his early 80s. And when he got saved, he just said, I got to serve the Lord. What can I do? He made our offering plates. He started making our handrails. I mean, anything he could do at our church, he was volunteering. He was showing up all the time. He just said, man, I've wasted my whole life. And I, my wife, for her 40th birthday, I wanted to make a, a cedar chest for her. And there's no way I could do this on my own. So I went to Ron. I said, Ron, can you help me make the cedar chest? But I, don't want to make, I wanted it to be a surprise for my wife. He said, Pastor Jim, I'd love to help you with that. He said, I said, well, Ron, how are we going to do this so that she doesn't know where I'm at? And he says, just tell her that we're having marriage trouble. And I said, so, <laughs> so I'm going to tell my wife that an 80-year-old couple's having marriage trouble. He said, yes, that's what you're going to tell her. So I came home. I said, honey, the McMurphys are having some really serious marriage problems. And my wife's like, really? And I said, it's the truth. And so uh, I started spending a lot of time in the McMurphys. We started with the raw wood. You know what I mean? Like we planed it down. We made this cedar chest. I put a tag on there that said, happy 40th birthday with love from Jim. She loved that tag as much as she loved the whole chest. I've got to save myself a lot of time and just got the tag. But, uh, but at night I presented that to her, I confessed. And I said, actually, the McMurphys were not having marriage trouble. I said, he was helping me build this. And that even meant more to her. I'll never forget the day we got the phone call that he had a stroke. And he ended up in one of those nursing homes that's not really nice. I don't know if you've ever been in those. They have a smell when you walk in. And, that was the, and he was totally alert, totally fine, but he could not speak. And my wife started visiting him twice a week. Twice a week, Joan would go and visit him. We just kind of adopted him into our family. And certain days, my wife would say, hey, we're all going to show up. And on those days, we'd all show up, and we'd often sing to Ron. And often we'd go around with her. We had three kids, and we'd say, hey, is there a song you'd like to sing? And one day, my youngest daughter said, I'd like to sing, Jesus Loves Me. You remember that song? Jesus loves me, this I know. We started singing that song, and as we started, Ron sang every word with us. When's the last time Ron heard that song? 70 years ago, when he was a little kid. And we finished, if you know how that song, Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. And he couldn't say another word. But the love of Christ compelled Ron. And he was crying and we were crying. And he couldn't say another word. But if you sang the song, Jesus Loves Me, he could sing it every word. I want to challenge you tonight. Is amazing grace still amazing to you? Is it amazing enough to tell your coworkers and your neighbors about your great God?
Do you go to work and interact with lost people? We all have lost people in our life. In my neighborhood, two, four doors down, we have a lesbian couple that says they're born-again lesbians. I've never heard of that in Canada. That's welcome to Iowa. That was a new thing in Iowa. And so we, we decided on purpose, we want to see these two ladies come to Christ and so that we're going to try and on purpose build a relationship with them. And so my wife had the first conversation and she found out who we were and the next day I was walking by and she waved me down from, her, uh, from the lawn and came up to me and said, you're the big guy at faith, aren't you? I said, well, if you're talking about my weight, that would be true. I'd be the big guy at faith. And she said, you know what I mean. And I said, well, if you mean I'm the president, yes, I'm the president of Faith Baptist Bible College. And she looked at me and she said, you think I'm going to hell, don't you? I said, why would you say that? And she said, well, because of my lifestyle. And I said, no, that is not why anyone would go to hell. I said, in fact, my wife told me that you say you're a born again uh, individual. I said, I'd love to hear your testimony. Oh, we don't have time for that right now, she says. And she said, oh, I gotta go. And so she left, but I tell you, Ever since then, she comes up anytime we're outside. We're, having, we're building a great relationship with her. We pray that she comes to know Christ as her Savior. Do you love God tonight? I could tell you of so many people. Your pastor could too. We both have seen this in, in our ministries. I think of another guy who would fly up in the Arctic. They'd fly him in on a Hercules plane, and they'd unload everything out there, and they had to set up camp as they explored for oil. And the Hercules plane had to take off before it iced in. And if they didn't get the camp set up that night, they died. Like, who signs up for a job like that? His description of himself is he said, I I wear a size 3 hat and a size 44 shirt, meaning I have a big, small head and broad shoulders. And he came to our church one day and and he came to our church picnic. We had a church picnic and he was sitting in a lawn chair. I walked up to him and said, hey, are you a Christian? He said, no. You should never tell a pastor that, by the way. I said, well, could we get together and talk about it? Sure, when do you want to come? I said, how about tomorrow night? Yeah, let's get together tomorrow night. He and his wife got saved. I used to sit up on the platform because people in our church never moved. Once they sat in their seat, that's where they sat every Sunday. And so that's how I knew who was missing. I'd just look around and see who's not in their normal chair. And we were singing the song, Amazing Grace. And as I'm looking across the audience, I, you know, if you're walk, watching and then you come back, as I watch past him, and again, he got saved in his late 60s. He's singing Amazing Grace, this tough, tough oil patch worker, and he's just weeping. And then I started to weep, and I couldn't look at him because Amazing Grace was still amazing to him. I want to challenge you tonight. If you really worship, God's commanded you to go and tell someone. We see verse 19, if you come back to our text. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Go. What are you intentionally doing to bring someone to Christ? I believe you need to start with prayer. Keep your finger here and back up to Matthew chapter 9. Just back up to chapter 9 in Matthew. Look what he says in verse 37 and 38. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he'll send forth laborers into his harvest. Who are you praying for by name to get saved tonight? Who are you actively pursuing? Can I challenge you tonight that if you're not actively pursuing someone to come to Christ, you are disobeying God? This is the mission. 
And, and how you do it will be, for some people, as I said in Canada, some people it was shovel people's snow. For some of them it was to talk to people. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can reach out to lost people. You know the number one reason lost people come to church is they're looking for a friend? You know how often I've been in churches where a lot smaller than this and I feel like I'm the invisible man? I walk in, I walk out, no one says hi to me. I would challenge you, you don't ever let a visitor do that. If they had the courage to come into this building, you know how all of you should say hi to them. They should walk away saying that is the friendliest church I've ever been to. Why? Because souls are at stake. What are you actively doing? What are you doing in this church? God's plan to reach the world is through the, the local church. What are you doing in this church to serve the Lord? Say, hey, this is what I'm doing so that the gospel can go forward in this church. Are you actively involved in pursuing someone? Is there someone on your heart tonight that you say, I want this person, you can think of their name, I want them to get saved. I could tell you of person after person that we prayed for. I can remember a guy named Reg Van Kunit. I was the first guy I met. When I first went to Canada, I came from Chicago. In Chicago, you dress like a business person, so I would have a white shirt and a tie. You get out west in America, that looks like a Mormon. I didn't know that. So I was out visiting. I had a small church. started with 10 people. I'm just visiting everyone in my neighborhood. I walked up to this house. He saw me from, the, he, the garage door was open. He saw me walk up, and he said loud enough for me to hear at the sidewalk, you go talk to him. And his wife came down, and I said, hi, I'm Pastor Jim, a new pastor in the area, just meeting the people. Oh, you're a pastor? Come on up. And so I came up, and I met him and built a relationship with him, had him work on my car. He, he was a mechanic. He worked out of his garage. And he told his wife he, he had been burned in a Catholic church, and so he, he and again, could have been any church. There's bad Baptist churches too. He said, but you can go to this church. She started coming, she got saved. He was a mean drunk. Every, I mean, he was a heavy, heavy drinker, and every time he got drunk, he was mean to his wife. He'd fix her car and charge her to fix it. That's how mean he was. But as we built a relationship with him, and as she, God got a hold of her heart, and she was just a sweet, wonderful lady. And I kept witnessing to him, inviting him to church, and he would have him over to our house for dinner. They'd have us over to their house for dinner. We'd start spending a lot of time together. He had a great sense of humor. Every time I'd get close to the gospel, he had a great way of laughing it off, making a joke of it. And one day, I remember we were talking on the phone, and I, I said, Reg, I've just been praying for you. I really want you to get saved. And he said, knock it off. How come every time we talk, you gotta talk about that? And he hung up the phone on me. You'd have to know how ornery I am. I dialed him right back. I just called him right back. Said, hey, Reg, we'll talk about baseball next time, but I just care about you. I wanted you to go to heaven. All right, but knock it off. A week after that, he calls me in a blizzard. If you've never seen a blizzard, it's, it's a winter version of a typhoon. <laughs> All right? And this blizzard came in, and he calls me in a blizzard, and he says, I need to meet you at your office. I said, Reg, that is really funny. That is a good joke. He says, I'm serious. I said, Reg, come on, it's a blizzard. I'm not driving through a blizzard. I need to talk to you right now. I said, Reg, you swear in a stack of Bibles that if I drive through a blizzard, you're going to be there. I promise. I said, Reg, I will end my friendship with you if I drive through a blizzard and you're not there. <laughs> he goes, I'm serious. I know. I'll be there. I said, all right, I got the phone. I said, honey, I don't know what's going on, but Reg wants to talk to me right now at the church. 
I had a pickup truck. I hopped in my truck. I drove through a blizzard. You could hardly see. The snow is so blinding off the front of your truck. I get to the church building, and he's there. I, I, I walk, can't believe it. And we prayed for him every single night for five years. And he came in and sat down in my office, and I said, what's up, Reg? And he says, I need to be saved. I said, why now? And he said, my wife, I can't take it anymore. He said, she's just been unbelievable. He said, I've been mean, I've been terrible, I've been ornery, and she's been nothing but nice to me. You know, it illustrates, it was the greatest illustration to me of the verse that says, if a husband won't be won by the word, he can be won by the lifestyle of the wife. And that day, Reg bowed his head and trusted Christ as his savior. Why? Because his wife, when she got saved, said, I'm not giving up on him. I want him to get saved. You know, a lot of people ask me, is your dad a pastor? You know, my parents got saved when I was five years old. My dad is not a pastor. My dad taught mechanized agriculture at a college, and then he'd build a home a summer. So I grew up working for my dad in construction. I was up in Canada, and we needed to put on an addition. My dad said, hey, I'll come and work the summer. I'll come and work in your building for free. It didn't cost us anything. And when we finally moved into our new building, we're going to honor my dad and my grandma that we'd witnessed to for 30 years. My grandma says, which is, this is, my dad is her son. She said, could I come? I said, sure, grandma, we'd love to have you come. And the church we started in didn't have a baptismal tank. So everyone that was getting saved as we're getting into our new building said, we want to get baptized in this building. And so that night we had 18 adults get baptized. And in our church, when you got baptized, you had to give your testimony. And so we had 18 people in a row give their testimony. Was, I was in the water for two hours. I came out like a raisin, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> but it was a wonderful night. And I came out of that baptismal tank. I am all wrinkled up. I'm like a raisin. And my grandma comes up to me and she says, Jim, I don't have what all those people talked about. Can we talk about that? And the next night I got to sit down and lead my 78-year-old grandmother to the Lord at our kitchen table. And you know why she got saved? Because my dad came and worked on a building. My dad would rather die than do what I'm doing tonight. If my dad had to get up and publicly speak, he just probably wouldn't do it. But he'd work his guts out so that someone can hear the gospel. We just had a flood on our campus this summer. My dad got 14 carpenters from his church and came and spent 10 days. He worked 13-hour days. I said, Dad, thank you. He said, Jim, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for the students. I believe these students can go out of here and make a difference for the cause of Christ. You know what? My dad cares about lost people. I wish she could have been there when we finished. I said, Grandma, do you want to call Dad? She said, I'd love to. I called my dad and I said, Dad, where are you? And he said, I'm driving home. I said, hey, Grandma wants to talk to you. And she hopped on the phone. She said, Buck, I just want you to know I got saved tonight. She said, I finally get it. I know you've been telling me about this for 30 years. But after I heard all those people give their testimony, it finally makes sense. And she said, I got saved tonight. And then she said, hey, your dad wants to talk to you. My dad got on the phone. I could hear my dad crying. I, I told you the other day, my dad's a tough guy. I've seen him maybe cry five times in my life. And through choked up emotion, my dad said, Jim, I would work on that building every summer to see what happened tonight. I want to challenge you tonight. 
There is a hell. And people who do not know Jesus Christ will go there. And you and I need to do everything we can to give them the gospel. And Jesus challenges you in verse 19, go. Our world will spend a lot of time and money looking for and trying to rescue those who are lost. March 8, 2014, Malaysia Flight 370 disappeared. We spent 111 million euros and three years looking for 227 passengers and 12 crew members, of which we still have not found. But when the world knew that they were lost, everybody went looking for them. The USS Indianapolis in World War II had dropped off some parts for the atomic bomb and it was making its way to the Philippines when it was sunk on July 30th, 1945. They estimate that 800 men went into the water. This is the single greatest loss of life from a single ship in the history of the United States Navy. Because there was a mix-up and then they didn't show up on time, no one went looking for them. No one even knew that they'd been sunk. And five days later, in a random patrol, a plane flying over saw an oil slick, lands, and sees men in the water. Takes as many men as they can. They immediately radio for help. And as they send planes and ships, when they finally show up, only 316 men survived. And as these 316 survivors began to tell their story, they began to tell of sharks that started showing up and became a shark-feeding frenzy. They started talking about day three, day four. It started to dawn on them as they never heard any planes, they never heard any ships. It started to dawn on them, nobody's looking for us. And they said, of, and some men just went crazy and swam off to imaginary islands. And they said, of all the things that we struggled and went through, one of the greatest things that struggled and bothered us was the fact that we, we became convinced that no one was looking for us. And could I challenge you tonight, the only thing worse than being lost is being lost and having no one out looking for you. Do you think that if the world ended today, half of Guam would not go to heaven? I don't know, do you believe that? I was in Edmonton, 1.3 million people. There's no way 10% of Edmonton was saved. 90%, 1.1 million people, if the world ended today, they would not go to heaven. Does that bother you tonight? Are you glad you and your family are saved? Is that good enough for you? And you just say, well, at least we're saved. Hey, at least we're going to heaven. What about all the people you drove by on your way to church tonight? Next time you go into a shopping mall, look around and just go, where are these people going to go without Jesus Christ? Will you do something about it? The only thing worse than being lost is being lost and no one's out looking for you. And could I kindly say tonight, that is the average church? Who's going to reach Guam if it isn't you tonight? And I know there's other churches, but churches like this, if the churches like this don't reach lost people, who's going to reach the people of Guam? And you can't expect one guy to do that. If you're here tonight and you say, evangelism is the pastor's job, you don't get it tonight. He has gifts and abilities, and maybe you're going to free him up so that he can use his gifts and abilities. But the Bible says 
We're not all an eye, we're not all a hand, we're all not a foot, but the body working together is what brings people to Christ. What are you doing on purpose so that someone can come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior? And then lastly, if we go back to our text in Matthew 28, we need to be a discipler. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. If you bring someone to Christ, I believe it's your responsibility to make sure they get discipled. You may not be the discipler, but you need to make sure that getting saved and being discipled are two sides of the same coin. Both are important. And both are the responsibility of the church. You know, when someone gets saved, the Bible calls them a baby spiritually. You don't just take a baby and leave that baby alone. You've got to take care of that baby. And all of us need to be involved in the process of discipleship. When's the last time you discipled someone? When's the last time you came alongside of someone and helped them take the next step spiritually? Again, if you think that's all the pastor's job, you don't get it. You know, the Bible says that if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, come alongside of them in a spirit of meekness. And we, we so hate confrontation that we see our brothers and sisters in Christ making bad choices and we don't say anything. That's not helpful. New Christians have tons of questions. And new Christians would love any of an older Christian to come alongside of them and just say, hey, I'll spend some time with you. I'll answer your questions. It's interesting if you study witnessing in the Bible, witnessing was always confrontational. It was always you need to make a choice. It was almost always initiated by the believer. It usually occurred in the normal unfolding of life, and it was always non-manipulative. It's what we call life-touching life discipleship. And the challenge tonight is, and you are a great group, right? You came on Monday night. As far as I can tell, if you fell asleep, you kept your mouth closed. That's fantastic tonight, all right? But let me challenge you. Do you care about lost people? Are you okay that you're saved? What about your neighbor? What about your coworker? What about your family members? Are you going to do what you can to reach out to them? The only thing worse than being lost is being lost and having no one out looking for you. Are you available tonight? Are you a worshiper? Are you submitting to God's authority? Are you going? Are you doing something to reach lost people? And are you seeking to be a discipler? The college that we went to used to have a phrase about discipleship. It said, be one, make one. Be a disciple and make a disciple. Who are you investing in? You know, when you get to heaven, there's no rewards for church attendance. Did you know that? You're not going to get to heaven and God go, wow, you never missed a service for 15 years. Well done, thou good and faithful church sitter. It's not what the Bible says. Now, you know what you get rewarded for? Well done, thou good and faithful what? Servant, service. All of us need to be involved in reaching people with the cause of Christ.